Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Black people know this. There's a difference between what you say and what you mean. I mean, and we have a finely calibrated mechanism measuring the difference between what is said to us and what is meant. Because it's been a matter of survival for us. You know what I mean? And we play. We say one thing, we mean something else. I mean, we made bad good. Today, we resume and conclude my conversation with the wildly imaginative visual artist and cinematographer, Arthur Jaffa. I'm Helga Davis, and welcome to my conversations with extraordinary people. When did you leave New York for California, and how Uh, how come you did that? I lived in New York for about 16 or 17 years, and I essentially was following my son, who's now 18, but at the time was two. His mom had gotten into graduate school in San Francisco, art school, and she moved out to San Francisco with him, and we weren't together together. So I commuted between New York and San Francisco for about two years, and that almost killed me just back and forth. And, you know, I was struggling, like, financially, so it wasn't easy. But I was very concerned and anxious about losing my emotional connection with my son. So I just went back and forth a lot for two years. And then eventually I was like, okay, this is not sustainable. I can't afford to do all this flying. I can't afford to be in San Francisco for two weeks at a time where I'm just watching him so his mom could focus on her studies and stuff. So I moved to L.A. because I just thought it would be easier. And just by happenstance, a friend of mine, two friends of mine, actually, I hadn't met that early before who had actually stayed with me when they were in New York. They said, we're about to get a house in Lemur Park in L.A., and we're looking for a co-house you know, house person. Would you be interested? And I was like, sure, yeah, this makes sense. So I, that's how I ended up in L.A. What was that like to live communally? I hear so many more people talking about that, Mm -hmm. and especially black people as we come up on the 30th anniversary of Octavia Butler and finding (laughs) communities and ways to share, share land, share resources. Right. Uh, (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily thought of it in those terms, but yeah, it was an amazingly, seemingly magical opportunity at the time. Like, wow, I get to move to L.A. and I don't got to stress about applying for (laughs) a lease or getting an apartment, which, Mm -hmm. you know, like anybody who lived like I live, on the margins, credit fucked up, all this kind of shit. It was always anxiety producing, trying to find an apartment, things like that. So it was a dream in that respect. Now, just naturally speaking, as a consequence, I went into what I would say is like more or less the toughest year of my life that I've ever experienced. In what way? A culmination of having turned 50 and being, I could never say I was unloved, but not being partnered in the way that I wanted to be partnered. So very wounded romantically, let's say. Turned 50 and being like, I don't got a pot to piss in. It's one thing turning 30 and being broke and chasing your art or even 40 for those who can hang on if they haven't actually got traction. But shit, 50 is scary. That shit was scary. It was scary. So there was a point at which I was spending a tremendous amount of time by myself. I mean, to the point that Greg and friends like, you know, Nefertiti and Guru and Bradford Young in particular 
were on the phone with me a lot. And they were just like, man, you're spending too much time. You know, I just had a lot of suicidal ideation, like my kind of ongoing mental health issues, which I had always uh, managed, struggled with, whatever you want to call it, came to a head. It was just a miserable, miserable moment in my life where I spent a lot of time convincing myself not to kill myself, (sighs) basically. Whatever the resilience that I was able to muster mostly had to do with my kids because I knew you can just look at statistically parents who kill themselves or harm themselves make their kids like some astronomical figure more likely to harm themselves. So it wasn't really an option for me, but it was the option that I obsessed about quite a bit. And it came to a head when I was like, okay, I just need to get my cinematography career back online because I had, quote unquote, retired from cinematography. I just didn't want to do it anymore. But it was the most lucrative thing I knew how to do. And But I remember a friend of mine's had put me forth. She was a, a cinematographer on this TV series. It was kind of like a Latino Degrassi high kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Low budget, you know, whatever. And she was shooting it, and she had to go on maternity leave. And she put me forth as a person to replace her. And I went in, I did the talk, I talked to the director, the producers, everybody else. They were like, wow, this is great. She was there, she was smiling because she wanted me to replace her. Um, We were going to work together for, I think, four or five weeks with me as a camera operator and her as a DP. And then when she went on a maternity leave, I was going to take over. I went in, I did the interview, and I was very much in my guess affirmative mode. Whatever you ask me, can we do this? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I was monosyllabic, basically. Yes, no. Yes, affirmative. You know, as people say, they've seen me talk my way out of more jobs. You know, they knew my work. That was like overqualified to shoot kind of what that was, you know, but but I I wasn't working at all. And so I was like, okay. Then they said, well, go talk to the production manager. I remember like, man, when they told me how much they were paying, it was so low. I was like, I don't know if I can do this job and right. survive. Right. I don't know if I can afford to do this job. But I thought at the end of the day, because it was like $100 a day or something like that, and I was just like, damn, I, I can't even pay my bills with this. But I was like, well, at least it's a lot of shooting. So I'll come out of it with my chops being up, you know, up. So you found another frame Way yeah, to frame, yeah, and to take it as a place where you could also learn, build on, learn and build, learn and build on. I mean, I I think you learn in every situation, mm-hmm. but technically speaking, wasn't going to be a lot for me to learn in that situation because I really, you know, post Crooklyn and all these other things. I mean, I've been shooting since my mid twenties, so you know, I was a veteran. I knew how to do what that was going to require. I think. But I wasn't arrogant about it. I thought there was a lot to learn. And then I was like, well, yeah, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And then I remember sitting at the bus stop, which gives you some indication where I was in L.A. And the bus, the the public transportation in L.A. LA is is not a thing. Yeah. That works. Um, a lot of people do it, but I, you yeah. know what I mean. Like, nobody chooses to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was waiting at the bus stop, and then I got a call, and they said, hey, we've decided to go with someone less experienced. I'll never forget the way they put it. And I was like, damn, how did I get to the point where I can't even get a $100 a day job? 
And I was just, man, I mean, it was just a culmination of everything. I was basically couch surfing at this point. And I remember, I mean, at 50, this is scary. It was scary. And um, I remember just calling my dad and said, Dad, I, I don't know how I landed here. Like, I was a person who was supposed to do X, Y, and Z and gave indications that mm-hmm. I was going to get there, and I didn't. And I just was, you know, I felt like and was a kind of failure. And he just said, just come home, son, and just re- re- get regroup. Your, regroup, yeah. He just said, come home. Going home at 50 is scary, mm-hmm. you know. And I just went and basically sat in my parents' living room for a couple of weeks and just looked out the window. I didn't know what I was going to do. And my friend Bradford called me. He was shooting a documentary in Philadelphia and had to replace him. So so you guys should get AJ to shoot. He's shot a thousand documentaries. I went up. We were there together for maybe a day and a half. And he split and I shot the remaining four days of the documentary. So I got a little money in my pocket. I mean, I said a little money. It was a little money, a couple of grand, you know, but it was something. And I just was like, okay, I need to just prepare myself to go back to L.A. because my kids are in L.A., so mm-hmm. I just got to go back and just deal with it for whatever it is. And uh, I uh, was sitting there, and I just got a call out of the blue from Paul Garns, who is the primary producer for Ava DuVernay and also at the time was producing for The Akils, Mara Brock Akil and Salim Akil, who did, like, Girlfriends, Being Mary Jane, The Game, all that, done a bunch of TV things. And Paul was producing a TV series for them. It was a pilot for a new series called The Startup, which was a kind of black entourage, you know. It would have been a huge hit if it had happened, I think. Uh, they called me and said, hey, um, Salim and Mara are interested in you maybe shooting this pilot. What are you doing? Paul and I said, well, I'm about to head back to L.A., he said, well, don't go yet because they're shooting here in Atlanta, which is where my parents were. And so that just sort of came out of the blue. And I even have told Mar and Slim to this day, like I went to them saying, you guys saved my life. I don't think you realize. Like mm-hmm. you literally saved my life. And um, I shot that. It wasn't my vision of where I was supposed to land. You know what I mean? But it was a godsend because I could have easily made a quarter of a million dollars for two, three months of work out of a year and just been free the rest of the year. Because they don't, you know, they shot on a schedule, so three months, the whole series would be. And, you know, it was a tough shoot. By midway, we had gotten into a groove, me and Hans Charles, who's my ace on that, and working with Celine, who was the most veteran director I'd ever worked with. I could say that. I mean, like, Salim, the way he saw it, I think, like, I was just so used to you do these indie things where it's like a person is doing one thing every whatever, five <laughs> years or something. And everything is riding on it. But for Salim, who had directed, I think, over 200 episodes of television, he was just the most veteran person I'd ever worked with. And it took me a second to realize the way he saw things was just very different from any director that I'd ever worked with. Like, for him, it was just a brick. Hmm. And, like, you know, you you lay a brick. It's not perfect. You're going to lay a thousand more. You've laid a thousand before, and you're going to lay a thousand afterwards. Uh, and so we started off a little shaky the first couple of days, but then we got into a groove, and I really enjoyed working with Salim. He was very excited about what we did, and he said, hey, man, I mean, I'm, I would just ask you right now, this is almost like a guarantee that it's going to get greenlit, like would you shoot the series as opposed to just the pilot? Yeah. And of course, that was a blessing at the time. And so I had come to Atlanta being distraught 
and got out of there with a brand new car, a Prius from <laughs> the time was a big deal for me. They literally shipped the car back to L.A. for me. The production did with this job sitting in front of me. They said it's going to happen in the next two or three months. And so I went back to L.A., uh, you know, with a sense of, like, uh, possibility. I had also very recently... Right around that same time, a really close friend of mine, Craig Street, introduced me to his therapist, who became my therapist, and very quickly said, I think you could use some pharmaceutical support, Mm -hmm. uh, which we did. And it kind of changed my life. I mean, like all of it together kind of changed my life. Um, uh, So all of a sudden, I remember, like, I just got to hang on till we go back to this other thing, you know. And, uh, And it got pushed once. And then I was like, oh, shit. I remember sitting on the side of the bed thinking, like, well, wherever I go, I'm not going back to where I was. So I'm going to make something happen. And a good angel friend of mine who I've mentioned once already, Khalil Joseph, someone had asked him about shooting a documentary for uh, German television, ZDF, ZDF. Uh, it was coming up on the 15th anniversary of the March on Washington. So this is like 2003. And uh, they had two nights of programming set and they had space for a specific thing, which is supposed to be a look back at the March on Washington. And Khalil initially was supposed to do it, but I, he couldn't get his head wrapped around mm. and kind of what it was, sort of. I think it's generational, just an age thing. And so he, before he gave it back to him, he said, hey, Jay, are you interested in doing this? And I was like, yes, before I even read it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? And I remember just writing, like literally sitting on the side of my bed and just writing a crazy treatment. It had very little to do with what the project was supposed to be. But I remember just basically saying, well, I don't want to do a documentary about the March on Washington. I was like, haven't I seen that before on PBS mm. multiple times? I think I've seen mm-hmm. multiple versions of that. I said, what I'm more interested in is doing something about where black people are now. Mm. I remember just framing it as like, I'm interested in the afterlife of the March on Washington. And I just I just want to talk to people because this is supposed to be a golden era for black folks. We got all these black billionaires and all this stuff, CEOs and all this kind of job. But black people don't seem happy. We don't seem collective like this is a golden age. And... Uh, and they, I just think, in hindsight, it was just too late for them to give it to anybody else more than anything. <laughs> uh, so in that sense, my sort of fleshly angels and my guardian angels mm-hmm. intervened. And so it was just fell into my lap with little or no oversight. And we just shot it very, very quickly, like in the course of a week or so. Flew, like, to New York, did as many people in New York as I could do, then went down south, starting in Atlanta, Kathleen Cleaver, people like that did, my dad, my cousin, a bunch of people, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. And then just did a road trip. I think we went to Nashville to do Hortense Spillers. I rendezvous with Fred Moden in uh, Arkansas, which is where he was from. We were just moving around, just one day here, one day, one day in a van. Shooting as much and as quickly as we could. And I'd always planned to do like Chicago and some other cities and stuff. We just ran out of time and money. And, um, you know, and just put it together very quickly. And uh, it turned out to be this thing I did called Dreams of Colder Than Death. It uh, showed at the Black Star Film Festival where it got an award. It then showed at the New York Film Festival. I got a commercial gig as a result of it, more or less. 
uh, which went south, meaning they asked for something. And then when they saw what they asked for, they were like, whoa, this is not really. And so they did what's called a rebrief, meaning like on a commercial, if a person said, we want you to do this and you do it, and they decide they don't want that. And so they basically pay you off because you uh, fulfill your right, contractual you're part obligation. Of the, right. Yeah, and they oftentimes will just hand it over to an editor with footage and they try to make whatever, the new thing they're going to make of it. I was in New York, and they said, uh, you know, hey, you, here's your check. You can bounce if you want. But I was already in New York. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm going to hang around. I'm curious to see the process. And somebody asked me something like, you've been a person who has theorized a lot about black cinema. Why do you think, you know, you haven't been able to fully manifest some of these things? And I said, well, the first answer is mental health issues. And people were like, People even laughed because they thought I was making oh, a joke. Oh. I don't know. It was just something about the headspace I was in at the time. I just didn't want to lie about those things. And I just was like, just very straightforward and honest. And I said, yeah, you know, there's all the structural reasons that I've talked about before, but I just think my own, you know, issues and stuff. And so that job went south, but I was sitting there every day. I got bored with what they were doing, and I just went and I sat and I put love as the message together in about two hours, like mm -hmm. I said. You know, the art world was the furthest thing from my mind at that moment. I was thinking, oh, this is kind of intense, what I just put together. I remember crying when I put it together. The first time I looked at it from beginning to end, it made me cry. Because I think in a way, I just strung things together that moved me mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Sometimes they moved me because, cause, you know, that was that moment where all of a sudden, whatever the cell, cell phone camera thing could, kicked in between YouTube, it was a moment. Well, all of a sudden, like Rodney King was a harbinger 20 years before because they just, ha some people just happened to have a video camera when the shit went down. But we know the shit is going down all the time. And once it hits some kind of critical mass of people having cameras in their cell phones and then somebody just saying, oh, you can videotape this shit? Then all of a sudden, there was this moment post Tamir Rice and stuff like that. All of a sudden, you just start seeing footage. It just was like a wave of footage all of a sudden. And I was just like everybody processing it. And so between that, I just had been collecting things as I would see them with no real intention around what to do mm -hmm. with it, just would just save it compulsively. And I had a file full of stuff and I just strung it together. And I was like, wow, this is intense. I remember showing it to the editor who had been working with me on the job, Chris Mitchell. And he was like, whoa, Jay, this thing is intense, man. And uh, like I said, I saw a week later Kanye do Ultralight Beam. I put them together, which is magic, from the beginning. And then Khalil and other friends, Greg, was like, don't put it on YouTube. I was like, I want people to see it. Don't put it on YouTube. I want people to see it. <laughs> and then Khalil, like I said, sort of took put it into it his own hands. He just put it forward in a context that would have never occurred to me. Gavin Brown, my dealer, great, incredible dealer, saw it, tracked me down in L.A., and then he was like, I saw this thing you did. I was like, what thing? You didn't see no thing I did. <laughs> you know what I mean? He started <laughs> describing, I think like, shit, that sounds like Love is a Message, you know? But I was like, how would you see it in Switzerland? You know what I mean? And then he mentioned Khalil, and I was like, oh, okay. You're listening to Helga. We'll rejoin the conversation in just a moment. Thanks for being here. The Brown Arts Institute at Brown University is a new university-wide research enterprise and catalyst for the arts at Brown 
that creates new work and supports, amplifies, and adds new dimensions to the creative practices of Brown's arts departments, faculty, students, and surrounding communities. Visit arts.brown.edu to learn more about our upcoming programming and to sign up for our mailing list. Everybody's got a story about a piece of music. I thought this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It's about pure experience, pure connection, pure joy. This song allowed me to survive. I'm Terrence McKnight with a new season of The Open Ears Project. Every Monday in under 20 minutes, you'll hear a different guest share their story. So you can start your week on the right note. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And now, let's rejoin my conversation with video artist and cinematographer, Arthur Jaffa. And so we come full circle. Full circle. And, you know, and Gavin had opened his space in Harlem, of all places. He hadn't had a space for a couple of years. He had been, like, just doing art fairs. And so he had put all of his resources into the space on 127th Street, which is a fairly radical gesture. Mm -hmm. You know, Harlem was not where people were thinking you were going to have an art gallery. And it's an amazing space. It's the most amazing space in New York, even now. And uh, it wasn't open. It was still a construction. Site. I said, look, I'm going to be in New York in a few weeks to shoot a documentary. And he said, well, I'll meet with you afterwards. We were shooting in Harlem. I just walked over to his space when I finished. We ended up hanging out for four or five hours. The next morning, he called me 10 o'clock. You know, and he <laughs> said, well, first of all, we should show this video. Mm. And I was like, uh, okay, as part of a group show or something? He was like, no, just a video by itself. This was like late November, and I was like, next year? He was like, no, in two weeks. You know, I was like, fuck, two weeks? I was like, is that possible? He's like, let me worry about it. As long as you're down, we'll take care of everything. And I was like, okay, cool. And um, it was about three weeks later that we opened it in Harlem, in his space. He said he wanted it to open before the election. And Trump got elected, and people showed up for Love is a Message, and, you know, that's how it went. You know, it was a very intense party around it. As someone said to me in England, like a few months later, legendary party, mm -hmm. DJ Reborn <laughs> was spinning the music. People were dancing hard. I think they let off some steam Same, from, yeah. the, from the whole Trump thing. Mm -hmm. I remember people looking at Dave Chappelle on Saturday Night Live before the opening. We just mm -hmm. used the screen to project it because mm -hmm. everybody was like, Dave Chappelle is going to be, you know, he's coming back out of retirement. He's going to be on there and he's going to be talking about obviously the Trump thing and all of this. And I don't know, it was just a work that kind of... I don't know, it just rode that moment, whatever that was, you know. But as I said to people, like, yeah, but I made this. I didn't make it in response to Trump. I mean, I was like. Right, you were just doing your work. Doing my work. You're doing your you work. Know? And I was like, you know, again, just being resistant to these sort of narrow readings of things. I was like, I made this under eight years of Obama's reign, not under Trump. You know what I mean? Like, all this shit, we are talking about killing black people. This shit is happening not under Trump. It was happening under Obama. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not so straightforward as people like to think these things are. And we are. keep talking about that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it isn't yeah, this it is. or that. Yeah, I, I like to say, 
Like when people have even asked me about what a Ghidra is about, and I would say, well, because Sadi always said, AJ is definitely not good talking about the meaning of his work, which is true. I have no idea. I make the work. The meaning, I speculate about it, but I'm not like the best person. But when I am the best person about is talking about the process, like how I arrived at making the work. I'm really good about process, I think. And so with the Ghidra, I remember saying, I'm not sure what it's about. I have a more of a handle about what it's about now, because amongst other things, I think it's a it's a premonition of Greg passing, for mm. example. Mm. Some conclusion I came to when I looked at it with Greg's daughter, Shinar, and she shared some of the things that he was saying about it. And we looked at it in light of Greg passing, and it's just impossible for me to not see it. He yeah. just feels like he's all over it, you know mm. what I mean? But... Um, but a Ghidra, I would say, when people would ask me about it, well, what is it, you know, about? And I was like, well, I don't know what it's about, but I know I was very preoccupied with this term discrepancy around it. Like, so as we evolved it, you know, it's a wave, sort of molten wave piece, what I guess you would say. I was very interested from the beginning that it has some relationship to a specific thing, but as soon as we locked that in, I was shifted. So it's like, it's a wave, it's not a wave. It's a body. It's not a body. It's Africans who would, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. It's Miles Davis's skin stretched on the Atlantic Ocean. It's a post Anthropocene vision of the world after man, a thousand years after man has, you know, gone extinct. You know, I remember asking my good friend, Carrie James Marshall, the difference between painting and a photograph. And he said, immediately discrepancy. Mm -hmm. So meaning like there's a disjunction between the rendering of the thing and the thing. It's a little like in the space on some level of or disruption, very Derrida-ish, I guess, of the relationship between the sign and the signifier, which is, you know, the first time I ever read that, I was like, well, black people know this. There's a difference between what you say and what you mean. I mean, and we have a finely calibrated mechanism mechanism measuring the difference between what is said to us and what is meant because it's been a matter of survival for us you know what I mean and we play we say one thing we mean something else I mean we made bad good mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. this shit is bad meaning like this shit is good you know what I mean so it's one of our superpowers, you know, so discrepancy, you know, like I used to say with James Brown, he didn't just say his shit was bad. He said, I'm, my shit is super bad. Right. And super bad yeah. means like not just bad, not just casually or almost like arbitrarily bad, but like, you know, uh, like unrepentantly bad, which would seem like, why would you pursue that? So I was like, Aguidra's thing about discrepancy. But see, the thing is, and I just figured this out recently when people ask me about the kind of work that I'm interested in making and the kind of work that I like, I would just say, well, number one, I'm just not interested in making remedial work. You know, and remedial is like A is for Apple. B is for ball, C is for cat. I'm just not interested in it. And I realized just recently that those two things are tethered together, my mm -hmm. embrace of the discrepancy between things and the remediality of things. I mean, like, in the true complexity of it, everything that's great has to have a little of both in reality. It's got to have a little of shit that's on the nose and a little of shit that's way left and right of the nose and below and above <laughs> the nose. You know what I mean? But it's got to have, when they say being on the one, like if we think in black music, being on the one, this question you said about 
you know, Buddy Waters and being in Keith. Well, you got to have a little of both. Mm-hmm. You got to be a little ahead and behind the beat. You got a little be to be in in key and out of key. That's mm-hmm. what gives attention. Having both things in equal measure or in dynamic measure with each other. So. I can just see it back in my life. If it's like one term, it's becoming a term that signified the move back and forth between Clarkson and Tupelo was by discrepancy. There was a discrepancy between the two environments. We think of environments as being stable right. and a real thing. And you're the one that's in flux in relationship to the backdrop. But it was like, no, foreground, background. What is foreground and what is background, you know? Last question I want to ask you is... Is there a thing that you do every day or most days that every person can do to hold some part of you that needs nurturing or a part of some practice that you have, a thing that you do that's part of your artistic practice (laughs) that every single person listening to this can do? Well, the real thing, if I'm being perfectly honest, that I do every day is Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to say it. AJ. I hate to say it. It's true. I'm a little obsessed with Instagram. I don't post very often. But I also look at Instagram very addictively, I would say, compulsively. But the reason that I'm predisposed to Instagram is because I've always been about images. I've always been about looking looking at images. So you do things to support your interest in images. And that happens to be— It's like compulsively I think about them in a certain way. Over the years, I've learned to think about it. But the compulsion to see images preceded me thinking about them in a certain way. Okay, but that's part of your work. So if I want you to express to me a thing that can help me be on whatever my journey is, what's a thing? Well, probably would say something like when I'm trying to uh, counsel my son, who's an artist, I would just say, follow your bliss. And, and p- But part of the following your bliss is like, what kinds of things intercede or disrupt that? It's not just, oh, put this in your mind and pursue that. Pursue the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Okay. Easy enough to say that. But the thing is, like, what's all the shit in between you and the pot of gold? So how do you how do you do that? Well, for me, I would say there's some people who are perhaps I would say we're more gifted than me, uh, we're situated better than me. I grew up thinking like, God, why am I in Mississippi? And a lot of my energy going into my teenage years, my adolescent years, was about how do I get the fuck out of here? It's a kind of inverse pursuit of your bliss in a way. It's a kind of getting away from the things that you feel are blocking your access to your bliss. Bliss being just... Not necessarily nirvana in the sense of the thing that gives you total or perfect pleasure. That's not what I mean by bliss. I mean getting good and comfortable with 
the things that trouble you, the things that attract your attention, just on that level of consciousness, what it is that your eye goes into when you walk into a room. You know, I always say to folks like, look, you got to get out here and try enough things to get an idea of what it is you should be doing. Like, you got to have a big enough sample to even figure out what your compulsions are. If you put an apple on the table and you say, that's what I'm attracted to. Well, what is that? You got to put an apple next to a fire truck, next to a wagon, all of which are red to realize Uh. it's not fruit. It's red is what you're attracted to. You need to have enough in your basic sample to figure out the Venn diagram. What connects all these things? It's red. So a lot of, for me, like having trained myself to not do what I think is kind of human nature, which is a recoil from the things that disturb you. I mean, I have definitely trained myself to not recoil or at least to not stay in that moment of recoil from the things that uh, disturb me, but to push towards them. And that's a learned skill, but I think it's at the core of everything that I do. AJ, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. That was the second half of my conversation with visual artist Arthur Jaffa. I'm Helga Davis, and it's been a pleasure to share these conversations with you this season. There's been all manner of advice for living a fuller, more open life from our guests. But from the wisdom of Claudia Rankin, I leave you with the one word we can all write on a piece of paper every day. Listen. To connect with the show, text HELGA to 70101. And we'll send you a link to our show page with every episode of this and past seasons, transcripts of my conversations, and resources of all the artists, authors, and musicians who have come up in conversation. We'd also love to hear from you. So drop us an email anytime at helga at wnyc.org. If you want to support the show, please leave us a comment and rating on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And as always, thanks for listening. Season 5 of Helga is a co-production of WNYC Studios and the Brown Arts Institute at Brown University. The show is produced by Alex Ambrose and David Norville with help from Lucy Jones. Our technical director is Alan Gofinski and our executive producer is Elizabeth Nonamaker. Original music by Michelle Lendegeocello and Jason Moran. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer at the Brown Arts Institute, along with producing director Jessica Wazilewski. WQXR's chief content officer is Ed Yim. <laughs> <laughs>